0: Good to be together. My name's Eric. I want to welcome you uh, into this space as we worship. I want to welcome you folks who are worshiping with us at home. Uh, Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We have just finished five weeks over a month on the theme of sexuality. And in a world where the conversation on sexuality and what it means to flourish is constantly changing... We have sought to ground ourselves in the way of Jesus, in the vision of Scripture, and in the historical Christian tradition. And what I want to do too is that conversation is not over. I'd love to. Not only is it ongoing, but um, invite you to come back tonight for uh, we have a forum tonight here, right here in this room on um, identity and sexuality. We would love for you to join us tonight as we continue that conversation. But today, this morning, we're going to move on from chapter one, finally, um, to chapter two. And over the next two weeks, we're going to be having a, a two-week conversation on the gospel and judgmentalism, okay? So it's going to sting a little bit, <laughs> it is what it is. It's there in the text. Judgmentalism and the gospel. I'll define that in just a few moments, but let's do this. In the interest of context, let's, let's sort of reorient ourselves a little bit into the text that is Romans. Paul, in this letter, in his writing, is doing a number of things. He is, he is making sort of general, global, and timeless theological observations, and not just observations, but declarations about who God is and And who humanity is. But he's also doing this, and this is really, really important, and we'll enter into this over the next couple of weeks. We can can forget in a study like Romans, which has so much theology in it, we can forget that it is a letter written to real people in a real time and in a real place. These are the church, you know, the, we should say like the church in Rome. The church in Rome is, is probably five to seven house churches. Communities of Christ that have begun to grow. Um, small communities, like they didn't need what we just did to sort of, for some of us, awkward two minutes of greeting each other. They didn't need to do that because they shared life together so deeply and, and intimately their lives were just enmeshed with one another. And so as the church was growing and it was it was drawing people in a city like Rome, it was drawing people from all sorts of backgrounds, which is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful sort of promise of the gospel that God would draw people from every nation and all kinds of backgrounds to himself through Christ. But what happens when that happens is stuff comes up. Tensions come up, relational tensions begin to surface. So in the church in Rome, there was a a societal tension related to class and status, and that was felt in the church gatherings. You've got the poorest of the poor worshiping next to the wealthy. In the church, you've got like kind of lifelong religious folk beginning to worship next to you know, lifelong pagans who had just encountered Christ. And there was a tension in that. Certainly, and we we're going to draw this out over the next couple of weeks, but really over the next years or whatever, however long it takes us to get through Romans, there was an ethnic tension in the church. And this was the tension. You could cut this tension with a knife. The Jew and Gentile relationship is God draw, drew people together From different cultural backgrounds, from different heritage, and with different identities and ideologies. As as the Lord brought them together, it created tension. And so what Paul is doing in his letter is on the one hand, he's making lofty statements, global statements about humanity and about God. But he's also speaking to real people and the tensions they felt amongst each other. So his letter is theological, but it is also pastoral and relational. And so what he's going to do today in the text that we'll read is Paul is going to speak directly to one of the most common sins in the early church, which as it would turn out is one of the most common sins in the current church. And that is the sin of judgmentalism. So I'll define that real quick before we read our text. Um, There's an amazing theologian named D.A. Carson who describes judgmentalism this way, and I think we can resonate with this definition. A sinfully critical spirit and condemning attitude. That's judgmentalism. And so here's the next two weeks of this conversation. This morning we'll talk about how judgmentalism hinders our witness to the world, so at a larger scale, And then next week we'll talk about how judgmentalism harms our relationships in the church, okay? And I promise to try to be really nice, okay? Before I read this passage, though, I want to do this. I want to pray. So I want to invite you to close your eyes, whether you're in this room or if you're worshiping at home. And prepare your hearts to hear the word of God. Spirit of God, your word is light and life. And it cuts like a knife, not to harm us, but to heal us. Spirit, this morning, we need a heart surgeon. And only you can do it. I know that I am not up for the task. It must be you. So, Lord, we pray, and I just want to pray that as we hear and receive your word, if you bring conviction to our hearts together, as you've brought conviction to my heart personally throughout this week, if you bring that, Lord, I pray that we would receive it as a gift and a kindness as you walk us out of the darkness and into your light. Amen. Romans chapter two, verses one to five. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And this is God's word. Right? Francis Schaeffer, uh, the Christian theologian, the late Christian theologian and apologist, told an illustration about this very text many years ago and, um, and it went something like this. He said this, he said, imagine that every person who has ever lived had a tape recorder around their neck. And they would wear this tape recorder um, from when they were very, very little. And this tape recorder would, would only record, listen to this, it would only reco- record the moral judgments that this child as they grew up into adulthood would make about other people, judgments they made in, in, not just in word, but in thought. And by moral judgments, I'm not talking about things like, that's a beautiful song, or I don't think that's their best record. I mean things like, what's wrong with her? Or he deserves what's coming to him. And every time they said something like that, it would be recorded on this tape recorder. And since I know there's millennials and Gen Z who don't know what a tape recorder is, imagine, (laughs) I'm kidding, imagine your iPhone has an app on it that is constantly recording the moral judgments you make about others, and it is always on. And this tape recorder or app... um, worn by this little boy or girl, let's call him a boy, um, that they wear throughout their whole life. Imagine that this person lives a very long life, 88, 89, 90 years, and, um, and they die. And then they stand before God the judge after a long, long life. And just imagine God says this to them. Instead of judging you by my word, and by my law, and by my standard, I'm going to judge you by your own, by your own standard, by your judgments against others. And then here's what God does. Just imagine it. God pulls out the tape recorder, and all he does is press play. that tape recorder or that, that recording would probably go on for longer than a few minutes, wouldn't it? Perhaps more than a couple hours, perhaps for some of us, maybe people like me, it goes on for days, months, or, or years as our judgments are just played out. And if God said, I'm going to judge you by the standard that you have judged others, and this is the way that Schaefer ended this illustration. He said this, can any of you stand in your own judgment? Let's close in prayer. Alright, I'm gonna get the band <laughs> back up here. You got a song called That's All I Got. A lot has been written about the life of Francis Schaefer. But one of his biographers, who was also one of his students, said this. I want you to hear this. He said, Schaefer was the first Christian leader who taught me to weep over the world instead of judging it. And I think that what, um, I know, lighten up, right? Okay. I think that what judgmentalism does, and maybe this is, maybe this is the main takeaway for you today judgmentalism keeps us from weeping over the world. And I think that what God wants to do in our community, and I certainly think that's what he wants to do is we read Romans and we study it and we try to apply it. Is he wants to break our hearts for the world rather than cause us to judge and condemn it. Can I get a witness? Okay, so let's look into the text today. Chapter two, one through five. Here's what we're going to do this morning. I'll let you know what we're going to do. This morning, we're going to see three things about our judgments, and then we're going to discover some gospel practices that will help us defeat the judgmentalism that is in within each of us, okay? So the three things that I need to say about judgment today is first, the reality of judgment, second, the outcome of judgment, and finally, the hope of judgment. Are you with me? Look in at verse 1 of chapter 2. I'll read this again. Paul says this, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now I'm going to pause here for a second. So we're looking this week at judgmentalism in a broad sense. Next week we'll look at how judgmentalism hinders and harms our relationships within the church. But but today we're going to talk about judgmentalism in in the world because it's everywhere, and this is the reality. And so what Paul is doing is he starts with this sort of broad lens on judging. He says these words, he says, therefore you have no excuse, O man. And that word for man is the word anthropos, which refers to mankind, refers to men and women from all ages and from all parts of the world. It's a general word used to describe humanity. So here's what's happening. Track with me here. Paul is shifting the argument from where he was in chapter 1. And the form that Paul is using here in our text is what is called a diatribe. And a diatribe is a rhetorical speech made against an imaginary opponent, okay? It's not that weird. We do this all the time. We make imaginary speeches to people who are not really there. So in this speech, in a diatribe, you would mimic the voice of your opponent. And even even anticipate their responses. This was a rhetorical device used in Greek culture to make a point, to make an argument, to really capture and hook your listeners into what you are saying. And so here's what Paul does. Paul is moving from one group, and we saw this in chapter 1, and we've seen this over the last few weeks. He's moving from a group of people who see the evil and sin in all of its forms in our world, they see it, and what do they do? They approve of it, and they participate in it, right? That's what he's doing at the end of chapter one. He's saying many people, they, when they see evil, they respond with approval, and they participate in it. But in chapter two, he makes a transition to a new group of people. Maybe some of us are a part of this group of people, and these are people who see the sin and evil in our world in all of its forms— and they condemn it while participating in it. That's the target here. Those who look at sin and evil and they're like, it's wrong. Those people are going to hell, what, you know, whatever. And all the while, they, there it says, they practice the very same things. If you, look, if you just draw your eye up in the text a little bit, in, verse, in verses um, 29 of chapter 1, Paul makes it very clear that he's not just talking about sexuality. He's, you can see it right there. Paul is talking about all forms of sin, coveting, envy, deceit, gossip, boasting, disobeying your parents. I hope my kids are watching right now. I think they are. Paul has addressed people who see, approve, and practice the ways of the world and the ideologies behind it, but Paul, and this is his typical Pauline style, is, is that no one is off the hook. And it's a, good, it's a good thing for us to remember right now, as I mentioned earlier, that Paul wrote this letter to Christians. Christians. Who 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 at times condemn those sinners in the world and yet perhaps do the very same things. There's a universal reality of judgmentalism, it's everywhere. But as it relates to the church, followers of Jesus and the world, it actually hinders our witness to the world. Judgmentalism is everywhere. And the social sciences have caught up to this. Do you ever notice that? Like, like sometimes the world will just affirm something and, and I wonder if God is like, yeah, I told you that a long time ago. Here's what I mean. Freud describes what we just read as projection, right? An example of projection would be this. Perhaps a man is attracted to a coworker and has begun flirting with the co-worker. And the minute this, this very man's wife even just mentions the name of one of her male co-workers, he immediately begins to accuse her of cheating. That's projection. And it's so common in our world and in our lives. We see it everywhere. A More, more recent than Freud, there was a... Um, brilliant man named Edwin Freeman, who wrote a book called The Failure of Nerve. And in the book, A Failure of Nerve, Friedman talks, he's commenting on what's wrong with Western civilization and culture. And he's talking particularly about how it relates to the theme of leadership. And he talks about this theme of blame displacement. Blame displacement is our refusal to take responsibility for our own immaturities, mistakes, and cowardice. And we refuse to do it by placing blame on the other. The other being a coworker, The other being a community of people. Or oftentimes a politician. Friedman kind of wonders if, if our obsessive need to be inundated with political news says more about our desire to place blame on someone else, i.e. those politicians or the left or the right, than to do what we ought to do, which is take personal responsibility for how we contribute toward justice and peace in our society. This is just a suggestion. Are you with me? So he's saying maybe maybe that's why we inundate ourselves, maybe that's why a news channel would be on in our home all day because we are constantly trying to displace blame on someone else rather than taking responsibility for the ways that we live in our world. So again, the social science the social scientists are catching up on this, and I think God's like, oh, that's cute that you that you that you saw that. There's a pastor and, and a theologian, John Stott, who's gone to be with the Lord, and he commented on this passage. And, and he said this, so let's move back to kind of theology in the scriptures. He said this, I think we have this quote. He says, We gain a vicarious satisfaction from condemning in others the very faults we excuse in ourselves. Freud called this moral gymnastic pro- projection. But Paul describes it centuries before Freud. Now listen to this. This device enables us simultaneously to retain our sins and our self-respect. What what happens is is this is the means that we, projection is kind of like this. There's something in me whether it's in my heart or in my thoughts or in my motives that, that get worked out into the deeds that I do. And there's something in me that I'm, I'm too afraid to, to confront and to deal with. And so rather than dealing with it, I project it on to others. And this is a global phenomenon. It's the reality of judgmentalism. And it's what is actually underneath all of it. And it's ugly. And we have to recognize it so that we can confront it. So that's where we start. We start with the universal reality of judgment, but, but Paul, and this is just, he just keeps digging. And this isn't my, this is, this is what he's doing. Okay. So like, don't kill the messenger, but he continues to dig in. And Paul shows us The outcome of judgment. So it's universal, it's everywhere, it's in the church, it's in the world, it's from the church to the world, all of that, but there's an outcome of our judgmentalism, and I'm just going to keep reading. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, listen to this, you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them, that you yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? We got to talk about the outcome of our judgmentalism. The outcome of our judgmentalism is that we are actually condemning ourselves when we judge. And Paul would have us know that he would say this, make no mistake, he says, God will judge. And he says this, God will judge in accordance with truth. That's what it literally says. In accordance with reality and without partiality, God himself will judge. Now the audience listening to Paul in this letter um, would perhaps be a a people who would say, but we're the elect. We're the chosen ones. And Paul is saying that some of you would draw on your heritage in a way to excuse yourself from your hypocrisy. That's That's what he's literally saying. And Paul would have us know that that our status, whether it's connected to our zip code or our address or our wealth or church attendance or a position of power or ethnicity or heritage or any of that, he would say, none of that can deal with the reality of our sin. None of that can put us in right relationship with God himself. God is impartial. And so, given that Paul is speaking to, Paul's speaking to Jews and Gentiles, again, he's making sort of general principles, but because he had a Jewish audience um, that was listening to him, certainly they would have been sort of steeped in the Old Testament, and this form of an argument would have reminded them of a story in ancient Israel from 2 Samuel chapter 12, which is where we're going to turn for just a moment. Many of us know, if you know the story of the Bible, you've heard of this man, David, um, who was Israel's king and uh, an incredibly influential part of the story of Israel. But but many of us know about a unique failure in the life of David, his egregious sin, his abuse of power, sexual sin and cover up and even murder related to Uriah and Bathsheba. And so what it had seemed that had happened after David committed these sins, it seemed that he was sort of off the hook. And in 2 Samuel 12, God sends the prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan brings the word of God to David through a story. And the way that Nathan brings it is it's similar to the diatribe that that Paul uses in Romans chapter 2. Nathan comes to him. God sends Nathan to David and, and and tells him a story. We pick it up in chapter twelve, verses one. And the Lord sent, sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the one and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. And what happens after that, we, don't, we won't read the whole story, but what happens after that is David experiences judgment for his sins. And here's, here's what happens in, the, in that text as it relates to what we're considering today. Nathan told David a story. And it was just different enough than David's own experience that it was appalling to David. Are you with me? He described a sin that because God was, had begun to convict David's heart of his own sin, Nathan tells a story that, that revealed the guilt and shame that David was actually feeling. And David was appalled at the sin of the other. Which, if we're really honest wasn't nearly as terrible as his own. And this is the way that Nathan exposes his sin. What about us? In our own world, in our judgment, in our hypocritical judgment of the world, we can often do the same thing. Oftentimes in the church we, we would condemn homosexuality and yet find entertainment in the sort of hookup culture that we see on reality TV. Like one is appalling to us, but one is maybe funny or, or, or worth being entertained by. Many of us are—we're outraged at the corporate greed that's exposed on the news, and yet perfectly fine with coveting our neighbors' lives and possessions, right? And I think that what what happens is that these things get stirred up in us and we don't know what to do with it. And again, that's where we're going. And so we place it on the other and we we excuse what is going on in our own hearts. The amazing thing about the story um, in David is that David responds in humility and repentance. His response to Nathan is, I have sinned against God. And here's what happens. I think that it's this moment in in David's life that that actually inspires some of the psalms that we have that are really the word of God. One of them being Psalm 141, verse 5, which I'll read to you today. This is David's words. That's not it. Psalm 141, 5. I'll read it to you. (laughs) I memorized it. Let a righteous man strike me. This is a metaphor, people, okay? He says this. He says, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Just imagine the, David, the poet, I don't know exactly when he wrote this, but I, I imagine him writing those words, thinking back to, there it is, to that moment when God in kindness sent the prophet to him. And he says, let him strike me on the head. What he means is, let him confront my sin. May God confront my sin in relationship. This is actually God being kind to me. One of the things that happens in our, let's go back to Romans 2, one of the things that happens in our text is the kindness of God, which we talk about all the time, The kindness of God is being redefined for us. What does it mean for God to be kind to us? (laughs) Let's turn back to um, to our text in Romans chapter 2. And I want to talk about, we've we've talked about the reality of judgment. We've talked about the outcome of judgment. But there's actually a hope in judgment. What is the kindness of God in this? We discover it here back in verses 3 through 5. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing, now listen to this, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be... Revealed. Paul is anticipating the responses of his listeners here, and he does it by he's drawing them into their own hypocrisy. And I love what he says here. He says, "Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience?" Now, here's the interesting thing. That's actually good theology, isn't it? God is in fact kind, patient. Patient and forbearing. Those are like key attributes of who God is. And yet, don't you think that we can use good theology to justify bad behavior? The, the listener to the story was, was perhaps presuming, oh, I, because I'm in, because I'm in the group or whatever, God will be kind and patient to me. But why is God kind and patient to us? Because he wants to lead us and our world to repentance. And so what Paul does here is he he looks ahead to what is called the day of judgment. Paul looks ahead with his readers to a day when, when God himself will right the wrongs in our world. And Paul, he draws out the reality that what we experience often right, right here, right now in our life is we experience the patience and forbearance of God, but God's patience will not last forever. He will judge. And we need him to, don't we? We actually need God to judge. And we oftentimes try to usurp his role in our own judgments of others but we need him to judge i was talking about this i was talking about this sermon with my wife this week talking about the theme of judgmentalism my wife's a therapist and so she sits with people who who have just experienced some of the most horrible evils Imaginal, imaginable. And she, she told me, she's like, yes, I completely agree with you. Hypocrisy is evil, but what's going to happen? What's God going to do about all the evil that people have experienced in their lives? What, what is God going to do about that? Here we are in February, Black History Month, which is an annual reminder of the evils of racism, past and present. And it's lingering effects on our black brothers and sisters. What is God going to do about that? Evil is not limited to our own nation. I'll never forget being in Rwanda and walking through one of the genocide memorials, which was actually a local church with, with dozens of pews and on these pews were the bones of men, women, and children who had been brutally murdered. And they were left there, and covered, but, but left there as a reminder of the great evil that humanity is capable of. And you can't be in a place, in a space like that and not ask the question, what is God going to do about And the answer is that there's a day of judgment. It's not the only answer, but it's the answer that Paul draws on here. God will judge the earth in righteousness. He will return and his justice will fill the earth and it will actually heal the earth. And in no way does that excuse us from turning a blind eye to injustice and be like, oh, God's going to work it out later. No, that's not it. But Paul draws on the fact that there is a day coming when God will make all the wrongs right and heal our world. And God isn't just being patient with those out there, he's being patient with us. Tim Keller draws out two questions that I believe every person is asking and here here comes the good news, okay? Here's the two questions, question one, if there is no day of judgment to account for all the wrongs of the world that people have gotten away with, listen to this, what hope is there for the world? But if there is a day of judgment, what hope is there for me? And wouldn't you know, the Christ our Lord, Jesus Christ, is the answer to both questions. Jesus himself will come as judge to right the wrongs of the world. But Jesus Christ himself is the one, the only one who can make us right before God so that we can stand in that day of judgment, forgiven. This is the gospel. This is, this is the message that we have for the world This is the message we have as Christians to offer the world, and we forfeit it by condemning the world and judging the world. And isn't that right? The message we have is that there is coming a day where God will make all the wrongs right, and and there is a God who sees not just the evil out there, but the evil in you, and says, I can heal that. And that's the message that we have. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. I've memorized this verse. Don't be impressed. I do this for a living, okay? For God so loved the world. Come on, somebody. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you ever read the next verse? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that he, the world might be saved through him. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world because we've got a pretty good handle on condemnation ourselves, right? In kindness in mercy and justice and love, God sent his son to save it and to save us. I'll say this, this is why the world's attempts at judgment and justice often fall so short. Because it's not motivated by the kindness that God is motivated by. And this is the message that we have to offer the world. Let's not forfeit that for condemnation. The secret sauce to to Christianity is that the world is constantly asking, is anyone righteous? And the Christian answer is no. None other than Christ our Lord, who we worship, who we proclaim, who we put forward as a model, who we declare to be the Savior, Christ alone. That is our message to the world. And when we condemn it, it hinders that message. And I don't want to hinder that message in my life. So let me give you a couple things. We've seen the, we've seen the reality of judgment. We've seen the outcome of judgment. We've seen the hope for judgment. Can I give you a couple of gospel practices that will, I, I pray and I really do believe, will defeat the judgmentalism in each one of us? The first word is discernment. What? Yeah, discernment. I want to talk about that. I'm indebted to Carrie um, Newhoff um, for this insight into this text. Because here's what happens when, we, when we're judging the world and condemn it. Nine, nine times out of ten, when we are confronted by sin in someone else, by the immaturity of another... All we're doing is trying to usurp God's role as judge. We move to judgment and condemnation, which is not our job. But I think what the Lord would have us do, and there's not like a quick fix on how to do this, but the Lord would call Christians to learn to discern what's really going on in our world. We live in a time that some have referred to as the age of outrage, right? I don't even need to explain it. You feel it. The age of outrage. But many of us are just happy to participate in it and call it holiness or whatever. So what if when something triggers you, whether it's politics or social media or or the sins in someone else, what if the first question you asked was this? what's going on in me? What's actually going on in my heart? Is my outrage justified? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Remember David? David didn't ask what's going on in me. He was outraged at the sin of another. But what if he had said, what's going on in me? Why is this triggering me? Why is this making me so angry? Is there something deeper that's going on in me? Another question to ask, the first question maybe is what's going on in me right now? But when you're confronted in the sin, with the sin of someone else, maybe ask this question. God, what are you trying to do here? God, what are you revealing right now? Maybe, so I'm a parent, um, which is, all of, my, all of my analogies are in parenthood, but my sins, is it, or my kids, as it turns out, um, are sinners, like their dad. And when something is, when I, when I witness that, my, like, this is just like, I go, I make a beeline for judgment, condemnation. If you don't stop this, you'll be in prison, or, like, what, you know what I mean? Like, it's dramatic taking a step back, God, what are, you, what are you trying to do here right now? Perhaps in your community groups, or your Bible study groups, somebody would confess a sin and, and something rises up immediately in you that says, I need, to, I need to correct this. I need to call this out. What if the Spirit of God would say to you, why don't you ask me what I'm doing here? How I'm working, how I'm moving, how I'm healing right now. So discernment. It's not a quick fix, but it's, it's when we're confronted with evil, we, we don't turn outward, we turn inward. God, why is, this, why is this stirring up in me? Is there something that in the depths of my heart that your kindness hasn't touched yet? I want to repent of that. God, what are you trying to do in this person that I love? Sermon. And the second is, I think, obvious because it comes straight from the text. The kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. And going to church is is it means many different things. There's many different things that we do. But if we do it right, every week we repent. Every week we come and we align ourselves with the reality that God has revealed of his holiness of his kingship, of his power, of his righteousness. We come to worship to align ourselves with that eternal reality. We turn from the idol- idolatry that we so constantly get meshed in and we worship the one true God. It's repentance. Right now we're repenting together. In a moment, we will, I'm going to invite the band up. For reals this time, I'm going to invite the band up, (laughs) wherever they are. Communion, I think, is one one of the premier ways that we practice repentance each and every week. Each and every week, we reckon with the reality of our need for a Savior. We just embrace it. We celebrate it. We stop raging against that reality and say, thank you, Jesus. I surrender to you. And our repentance on Sunday ought to lead us into a life of of humble repentance throughout the week where we seek to share the grace that God has given to each one of us to give it away freely because it's been given to us. And that's what we've come to do. That's, that's how the Lord heals the judgmentalism in each one of us. Is he leads us to repentance. It's in his kindness that he does that. I invite you to close your eyes right now. For many of us God is God is being uniquely kind. Perhaps he's revealing an area of hypocrisy that that you've lived in. And in his kindness God is saying, "We we're going to we're going we're gonna to deal with that today." Perhaps God's revealing a person in your life, that you have maybe not out, outrightly condemned, but you treat them with contempt. And God would tell us, He would remind us, I never did that with you. we'll take communion in just a moment you know there's this passage in in Corinthians where Paul calls the church he says "If, if you're entering the table with bitterness and judgment in your heart towards your brother or sister in Christ repent repent of that even before you take the elements maybe that person isn't here and you could just repent of that right now and commit to seeking restoration there. Perhaps they are here and this space could become a sanctuary. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your kindness and love. You haven't asked us to take up your role as if we could. You're perfect in justice. You're perfect in love. in grace and truth. So we welcome that in our lives, Lord. And we worship you. Amen.